This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. So the peace deal that was just signed between the United States and the Taliban. Why do you think these talks succeeded? Well, not to be unkind about it, because I think the effort deserves to be made, but this is not a peace deal. What it really is, it's a discussion about the circumstances under which the United States will withdraw its troops from Afghanistan, which is the principal Taliban aim. I'm afraid The Taliban version of this is they've defeated the United States. The United States is leaving. The unpredictability of President Trump and the continued reports that he would very much like to remove the American presence before elections, although that might might not even be physically possible, that undermines the credibility of the attempt to get into any kind of serious peace negotiation. No negotiator can really negotiate against an artificial deadline, let alone against a deadline which could come up in a tweet in any moment. And that's that's a huge difficulty with what is happening now. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. James Cunningham served as U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan from August 2012 to December 2014. Jim, during his career at the State Department, also served as U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Consul General to Hong Kong and Macau, and Deputy U.S. Permanent Representative to the United Nations. Jim is now a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Jim and I recently sat down to chat about Afghanistan, but we ended up talking about a few other things as well. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Mr. Ambassador, Jim, it's an honor to have you on Intelligence Matters. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for asking me. So as you know, I wanted to talk with you primarily about the peace deal between the U.S. and the Taliban and where you think Afghanistan is heading. 
But before I do that, I want to ask you a couple of questions about this Russia-Afghanistan issue. And then at the end, I want to ask you a couple of questions about uh, a couple other parts of the world where you served, largely because your career is so fascinating. But the place to start, I think, on this Russian and Afghanistan thing is simply to ask you two questions. The first is, I'd love you to kind of put yourself back in the place of being the ambassador in Kabul. And you received intelligence every day. You received what the analysts back in Washington were writing, and you received the raw intelligence that was being collected in the region. And I'd love to know that if, if you saw raw intelligence that said or suggested that the Russians were offering bounties to militants to kill American soldiers, what would your reaction to that have been as the ambassador? And what, what would you have done as the ambassador had you seen that raw intelligence? Uh, that's a very interesting perspective to look at this, given the, the way the discussion is unfolding here in the United States. Um, well, first, I would have been outraged. Uh, furthermore, I've been outraged for some time because we've known that the Russians have been providing financial and other assist to, to other assistance to the Taliban for several years now. Um, I don't think that was happening when when I was in Afghanistan. Um, I was there until the end of 2014, um, but we knew even then that what the Russians really wanted um, out of Afghanistan was not to promote peace, and they certainly didn't want to see the United States succeed in Afghanistan. What they, what they were, wanted, what they were perfectly happy to see was a, an American-led alliance, not just NATO, but an international partnership, struggling and expending blood and treasure on trying to stabilize the country and hold back the very Islamist violent extremism that Putin so fears. So in a way, our engagement there was serving as a buffer zone uh, against the spread of, of uh, Islamist violence uh, northwards from Afghanistan into Central Asia and Russia. So from their point of view, that was a pretty good deal. And we were doing all the fighting and all the suffering and all the expending of money we collectively, again, not just the United States. And they were, uh, they were watching this spectacle. We were serving their interest, uh, but we were, they were also um, hoping to see the United States and its, and its allies weakened. So that was bad enough. Then a couple of years ago, as they became, I assume, more and more convinced that we were actually leaving, uh, they shifted to trying to buy uh, and um, develop their influence with the Taliban as a as a hedging maneuver. And then, if if these reports are true, um, that they then shifted to actually encouraging the killing of American and British and maybe other coalition um, troops. That's a a serious qualitative change in their in their tactics. Their goal now, it would seem, it would be to um, build influence with the Taliban, uh, get us out of there, discredited, dispirited, with cracks in our alliances and our international partnerships, uh, 
and then uh, work with the, the Taliban and others to try to stabilize the situation after we leave because their overriding interest is still preventing the spread of Islamist extremism north from South Asia into Central Asia and into Russia. So what I would have done about that is that one of the first things I would have done was made sure that we went directly to Moscow and, and find, find out what's going on. Tell them, this is what we know is happening. We want you to knock it off. And if you don't, then there are going to be consequences. And those consequences should be pretty severe. So if you were, you know, serving as the ambassador and there was a deputies meeting or principals meeting and you were on the screen from Kabul, you would have, you would have recommended a U.S. response in some way. Yeah, I would have recommended a, a diplomatic response in the first case and not publicly, but going directly to Moscow at a high level and saying, this is what we see and you got to stop it. So Jim, your last assignment in the Foreign Service was as U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, and I think you served in that job for two and a half years. But when you took over as ambassador, correct me if I'm wrong, you had just served there as a deputy ambassador for the previous two years. So you were in country for quite a long time, almost four and a half years. Is that right? I was there actually for three and a half years. Three and a half. Okay. I went there as the deputy to uh, Ryan Crocker uh, after I, I was ambassador to Israel before that. Um, then they asked me to go to Afghanistan. I went to there as Ryan's deputy and then became ambassador. They asked me to stay on and be ambassador when he, when he left after a year. So describe the situation in Afghanistan that you walked into when you first got there as the deputy ambassador. What was it like? Uh, well, when I got there, so this was uh, the, the summer of 2011, the uh, military surge had just peaked and there was supposed to be a corresponding um, civilian surge, which was struggling because not, that's not the kind of thing that civilian parts of the government do very well. Uh, but when I got there, um, there was a, uh, what we thought was a longer term strategy. The military was going to start drawing down to a lower level, but, but the, the pace and rate of that withdrawal had not been decided. And um, when I got there, we still had civilians as well as the military uh, throughout the whole country. I had um, the civilians under my, <clears throat> under the embassy's uh, purview in villages and PRTs and cities throughout the country. So that was, it was a very widespread um, presence and, and range of activity. So that, that really was the peak. One of the first things uh, we decided after I got there was with the military already starting to draw down, it became clear to us that as that withdrawal took place, uh, the civilians were gonna have to start withdrawing too because the military provided the security for our people in the field. They lived and worked together. So one of the first things we did is that we're not gonna, there's, there's no point in finishing the civilian surge what we need to start doing is figuring out how to withdraw along with the military. So Jim, when you, when you first got there, do you think our objective was clear and do you think our objective was achievable? Um, when I got there, I thought the objective was clear, but then it became 
apparent uh, after a little while, maybe a year or so after uh, President Obama decided that we were going to withdraw on a timeline and, and, a, and in a more precipitous way than I had thought, it became harder to understand how we were going to reconcile that, that kind of process with an ongoing effort to uh, not just contain the Taliban, but to, but to get them to a place where they would get to a negotiating table. And the, the fundamental problem was once President Obama made clear that his desire was to get out of Afghanistan, um, the Taliban no longer had any reason to do anything except, except uh, endure and wait for the American departure. So over the, over the three and a half years that I was there, we went from a situation where we had originally planned a very long-term and significant civilian presence throughout the country with some still meaningful, if lower level of military troops, we eventually got to a place where it was clear the civilian presence was going to be severely curtailed as the uh, Obama administration tried to get as many troops out of Afghanistan as, as possible within, within his presidency. So to the president's credit, he, he kept recalibrating as we went through this process over years, and he kept extending the timeline, but he maintained a timeline up until the very end of his administration when he decided that he would not um, continue with a complete withdrawal of U.S. troops, but would leave that question to his successor. So, Jim, you were you were in Afghanistan for the what I guess were the first round of talks with the Taliban that Ambassador Holbrook got started. Did those talks falter because of the timeline, or because of other reasons, or the timeline and other reasons, or why did they not go anywhere? It, it wasn't uh, Ambassador Holbrook. It was um, it was after Holbrook died and Mark Grossman replaced him. So. Mark and I got, it may have started under Holbrook, I don't know exactly when they developed those contacts. But in my, in my time there, I, in fact, one of the reasons they asked me to go there is they needed to reconstitute the staff after Holbrook died. And I had worked closely with Holbrook at the UN. Um, in any event, the, uh, there were initial talks, but they were, they were pretty loose and unfocused. Uh, and they they really came apart at, after a very short time after I got there, uh, when President Karzai reacted very badly to some news out of someplace I don't remember where, but some news that we were what he thought was working on a separate deal with Taliban, and he objected very strongly to that. And in that context, um, we made a decision to to break off that discussion which then we tried to resume in a different form uh, after a little while. And that different form is what led eventually to the establishment of the Taliban political office in, in Doha. So the peace deal that was just signed between, between the United States and the Taliban, can you, can you summarize that for our listeners? And why do you think these talks succeeded? Well, not to be unkind about it, because I think the effort deserves to be made, but this is not a peace deal. Um, this is a deal which 
under its best iteration uh, would lead to the opening of peace discussions between the Taliban and the Afghan government. That still remains to be seen. But it, what it really is, it's a discussion about the circumstances under which the United States will withdraw its troops from Afghanistan, which is the principal Taliban aim, um, and understandably so in the circumstances. So the, the question always was for people like me, who believe that it's worthwhile continuing our engagement in Afghanistan as long as we have a willing Afghan partner to work with. <clears throat> the question is how and whether one can actually use the promise of the withdrawal of American troops as a leverage to get the Taliban to agree to a serious discussion of how to stabilize the country and, and bring about a peace, uh, peace agreement. So as I said, that, that question remains open. A number of people are working hard trying to do that. But I'm afraid the Taliban version of this from their, own, from their public messaging and private things they've been telling to Afghans and others, their version of what's happening is they've defeated the United States the United States is leaving. They will reestablish the Islamic Emirate. The terms of this, of how they, how and if they will break with Al Qaeda, are not very precise or verifiable. And there are still reports of links and ties between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. And that was one of the one of the key elements of the agreement. They were supposed to break those ties and not allow Al Qaeda to operate. Um, on Afghan territory. So there's real reason to think, there's real reason to doubt whether they're, uh, they have a genuine intention to actually enter into a meaningful discussion rather than thinking that they are in the process of imposing terms after we leave. And that's why it's so, it's so difficult now. And, and I, I'm not saying any of this to be critical of Ambassador Khalilazad because he has a really really difficult task in sorting all this out. But the unpredictability of President Trump and the continued reports that he's would very much like to remove the American presence before elections, although that might, might not even be physically possible. But that's, that undermines the credibility of the attempt to get into any kind of serious peace negotiation. I mean, there's no no negotiator can can really negotiate against an artificial deadline, let alone against a deadline which could come up uh, in a tweet in any moment. And that's that's a huge difficulty with what is happening now. So is the is the next step here supposed to be that the Taliban sitting down and negotiating with the Afghan government? Is that what's supposed to happen? What's supposed to happen is uh, we. We, the United States, uh, cut a deal with the Taliban to which the Afghan government was not a party, that the Afghan government would release 5,000 prisoners and that the Taliban would release uh, 1,000 Afghan prisoners. That was the first step. Now, the fact that we didn't bother to tell the Afghan government that we were doing this made it a little difficult to move with alacrity towards implementing part of that deal, but that's now happening. And President Ghani has now made the decision that he will, 
he will expedite the release of the remaining Taliban prisoners. What's supposed to happen after that is the beginning of the negotiations. Yeah, and it looks like the first um, session, prelude to negotiations, if not actual negotiations, will take place in Doha. And, and we'll see if that happens. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Ambassador Jim Cunningham. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So Jim, I want to come back to this, these, these, these two questions about the Taliban and whether what they'd be willing to do. And I'm just, and I know everything's negotiable at the end of the day. And oftentimes negotiators and our diplomats achieve things that analysts don't think are possible. I certainly saw a history of that when I was at CIA. But I'm wondering what you think about the Taliban's willingness at the end of the day to be a part of an Afghan government or be a political party in a democracy in Afghanistan, as opposed to being the government, a reestablishment of an autocracy, Sharia law-based dictatorship, essentially. What's, what's your sense? Is there any hope that we can get them to be part of a government rather than the government? Uh, there is hope, uh, but it will be, uh, it will be very complicated to do to do that in order to get as i as i said earlier their basic worldview is they've won they're going to reestablish the emirate it it may be a they're trying to convince um a lot of their interlocutor sophisticated members of the taliban trying to convince their interlocutors that this will be a kinder gentler islamic emirate i think that's a pretty difficult thing to bet on because they would, I mean, their vision has been for some, they announced this years ago when I was still in, Af in Kabul. They explained that their vision was they take control of the government and they will be inclusive and they will bring some outsiders into it, um, presumably technocrats. But it's, it's their show. That's not something that the Afghan people want, and it's not something that, that, we want or we should want either. So in order to get to a better kind of outcome, which is more stable and more enduring because it meets the aspirations of much more of the Afghan people, it will require a pretty sophisticated effort, not just by the United States, but by a lot of our uh, partners in the region. And again, we, we dispose of many, many uh, good partners in the region, to convince the Taliban that the future that they see and want for Afghanistan is neither achievable nor durable. Uh, the first part of that is to convince them that they can't achieve what they want by military means or that that is not a good way to achieve it. And there are some people who think that 
they've reached that conclusion. Actually, some, at least some parts of the Taliban have reached that conclusion. Others have not. There may be a split in the Taliban eventually. But they also need to be convinced that their view of Afghanistan and what Afghanistan can be in the future needs to be shared by uh, a, a consensus of people in the country. And that's the hard part, because that means it's not the emirate. It's not an autocracy. It's not a theocracy. It's some kind of democracy with um, maintenance of media freedoms and freedoms of the press and human rights protections and rights for women and university education and and all the stuff, the the internet, cell phones, all the stuff that um, has has been developed over the past uh, 20 years in Afghanistan, which is all very unperfect. There's no doubt about that, but, but nonetheless, it's there. And, you can't turn the clock back and just say, well, you know, we're going to forget about all that. So uh, there are, I think there are ways to persuade the Taliban in the context of a negotiation and in the context of looking forward to the future that they need to adjust their view about what Afghanistan will be and what their role in it will be, and that it's a lot better than fighting. That'll be hard, but I don't think it's impossible. But we would need some leverage in order to get them to that perspective, I would imagine. Right. So, so one, of their le- one of the pieces of leverage is they don't want to be internationally isolated when they come out of this like they were before. That's, that's a huge piece of leverage. The other, another piece of leverage is they are well aware that they're going to need international assistance and international partners. Well, where is that assistance and partnership going to come from? It's not going to come from Russia or China or Pakistan or uh, Iran or, you know, any other uh, direction than from the coalition that's now there uh, providing the uh, development and humanitarian assistance that Afghanistan receives. So that's also a huge bit of leverage, um, persuading them to alter their view of how their future reality is going to be also includes persuading them that if they get this wrong, not only might the country plunge back into civil war, but all this, all the international assistance and recognition on which Afghanistan will depend will be unavailable to them. And that's huge leverage. So Jim, what about the Taliban Al Qaeda question in your mind? They continue to deny that Al-Qaeda was responsible for 9-11. They continue to deny that Al-Qaeda is in the country. We know that's not true. Do you think they will follow through on their commitment not to allow any terrorist group to conduct an attack from their territory because they learned their lesson now? Or, or do you think that is an open question? I think it's an open question. Um, it's not even clear to me that they could carry through on that commitment even if they if they wanted to it's it's not as if you know we're we're all sitting there nice and happy in our manicured neighborhoods and the taliban has their house and yard over here and the afghan government has its over there it's it's still a a wild and open place that's why isis is there um isis is is still there still active um, we're hunting them. The Afghan government is hunting them. The Taliban have been fighting them when they when they cross, but they're still there and they're still operating. So, 
it, they may or may not exert themselves to try to prevent Al Qaeda from reconstituting and and developing a, a planning and operational capability that it would eventually be a threat to us again. It may be that they won't be all that interested in actually following up on this. And as I said earlier, there's there's very little in by it. There's very little in the agreement that we have with them that. Um, would provide confidence that we could verify or or somehow have confidence that they were living up to their commitments. And as you said correctly, there's very little question that Al Qaeda is still present and and training at least uh, 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 in Afghanistan um, even as we speak. So, Mr. Ambassador, if Vice President Biden becomes the president, and if he were to ask you what should I do with the hand I've been dealt on Afghanistan? What would you tell him? Well, <laughs> we've had a version of that conversation already when I was ambassador. Um, he didn't like the answer. Um, but the circumstances have changed now. So Vice President Biden was very skeptical about having a, a large long-term presence in Afghanistan. And that's that's certainly a, a justifiable proposition to, to discuss and debate. What I would say is he's, he was focused on trying to narrow the mission down to counterterrorism, which is why we went there in the first place. Um, under the current circumstances, uh, I would say that the complete withdrawal of U.S. forces uh, will lead to a bad outcome one way or another for us and for Afghanistan. What we should try to do is correct the mistakes of the Trump administration, which created massive uncertainty among our friends and partners as well as our adversaries. And I keep referring to our friends and partners because they've been there with us the whole time and they yes. will continue to be with us if, we, if we're clear about what we want. So we should, my, so my prescription would be correct the uncertainty created by the Trump administration that we have a commitment to trying to get to a good result, that we want to do so with, at the lowest possible level of troops with the narrowest range of missions consistent with um, preserving the, the capacity, the capabilities of the Afghan National Security Forces and redouble our diplomatic efforts, focus our diplomatic efforts, give us the diplomatic instruments to try to create the context to shape the diplomatic battlefield to get to negotiations and then influence the negotiations. I actually supported the, the Trump administration at the outset uh, when they adopted their South Asia strategy, um, which was crafted in large measure by uh, General McMaster and, and others at the time, General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, because it did that. The original idea, which they persuaded the president to accept, was to put a premium on getting to a peace negotiation, but to do that by, by setting the military, the security part of it, in place in a way that would set the conditions for making clear to the Taliban they could not prevail by terrorism and violence, but they needed to seek a negotiated outcome. That's still, in my view, the correct basic approach. It didn't work very well. 
because almost immediately after adapting the strategy, the president made clear that he uh, that he was looking for a way out. But I think that's still basically the the right way to go about this. Jim, I want to ask you one more question about Afghanistan before we turn to a couple other topics, and that is, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, of course, and and I'm just wondering if the U.S had a do-over in Afghanistan post 9-11, if you would have recommended that we had approached the problem differently than we did? Um, uh, Certainly in hindsight, I would have, um, I wasn't, I was indirectly involved in Afghanistan after 9-11 because I was, I I was the acting representative to the UN on 9-11. And so I was, very involved in the diplomatic aftermath and um, but not not in the nuts and bolts of what we were doing there but yes i mean there there are several i think major strategic mistakes that we that we made um, uh, one of them was probably re- there were there was a considerable body of opinion that thought we should have included the Taliban somehow in the post expulsion after the Taliban was expelled from Afghanistan, we should have included them somehow in a discussion about rebuilding the political system uh, in the, in the bond conference. And we should have been aware earlier that there was going to be, even, even if there wasn't at the moment that there was going to eventually to be a long-term security problem. If we didn't organize ourselves and the Afghan security forces correctly. And there was a long time lag a long time when we weren't doing that in any serious way, in part because the administration decided that Iraq was more important. And then we were dealing with twin crises um, in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. And then I think most importantly, what looked when I went to Afghanistan, what looked like the long-term commitment by the United States of declining but significant military forces and a civilian presence, the, the clarity that that was not the plan and that the uh, President Obama was seeking a way to withdraw military forces, I think made it impossible to expect that the Taliban was going to do anything other than, than what they did. So there are lessons to be learned there as we go through um, as we go through other situations like this, none of them will be exactly the same, but certainly one of them is if you want your adversary to do something, you need to convince him that he's going to have to, that he's will pay a price or achieve something in a different way. than if he just keeps doing the things that you don't want him to do. Yeah. Yeah. Let's um, switch gears to two other places that, you served. So we mentioned that you were the ambassador to Israel. And I'm wondering, I think I know the answer to this. I'm wondering what your sense is of where we are on the peace process, despite the the plan that the administration outlined several months ago, and anticipating what your answer to that might be. I'm wondering if there's a way in your mind that we can somehow reinvigorate the peace process. It's really hard to see how it could be, as you put it, reinvigorated. The net effect of what's happening right now 
is that there there is no peace process and there won't be the the so-called um, Trump plan or the Kushner plan, whatever, it, it's just, it's an impossibility for the Palestinians. Not that, not that there was any prospect in the near term for a peace process anyway, given the mass amount of instability that there is now in, in Syria and Lebanon and in the Middle East in general and the, the disarray of the Palestinians themselves. But, there was there there had always been some hope that at in some way might be found back to a reasonable way of um, seeking a two state solution with what the trump administration has done and what with what uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is about to do in terms of annexations of large whatever dimensions of settlements that they decide to annex. I think his intention is clear that there's not going to be a um, there's not going to be a two state solution, and uh, Israel will annex, make whatever decisions it has to make. They can do that with very little conditions, and I think the the end result of that is going to be once once Israel annexes significant amounts of territory in the Jordan Valley they will have set the terms for a future of the region. I have long felt, and I, when I was ambassador to Israel, I argued to Prime Minister Netanyahu would open up a very difficult perspective for the future of, of Israel, uh, a country and a, a people that I, I greatly admire, I have to say. So I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm sad, to, sad to say that I think the decisions are, that are about to be made are, are going to set the stage for a situation where Israel is going to have to either it's going to create the conditions for a one-state solution, and then it will have to address what it is going to do with all the Arab Israelis and Palestinians that will be under its jurisdiction. And I, I think that's going to be a painful process. So Hong Kong. Uh, you lived and worked there. What's your view on what the Chinese are doing, and how do you see it playing out? Uh, well, what the Chinese are doing is they're uh, they're gutting, doing away with the constraints that uh, applied on their their policies toward Hong Kong under the one country two systems agreement that uh, the British and the Chinese governments agreed to in 1984. So there's a, there's a, a document that codifies that agreement. It's an international agreement registered with the United Nations, and they've just abrogated it because this, the security law that they have passed, in effect, opens up the legal system in Hong Kong to uh, being run under... Chinese Communist Party standards, and we all know what Chinese Communist Party justice can look like when the party decides that it doesn't like what somebody's doing. So I have a lot of friends there who are now going to be exposed uh, to the threat of being arrested and sentenced to jail for speaking their mind about Hong Kong and its future. And I think it's a it's a very sad day that I hope the 
Chinese government will come to regret because I don't think that this may be in their long, in even in their long-term interest. But it's also uh, it's also going to be a very unfortunate for Hong Kong, I think. Mr. Ambassador, you've been terrific with your time. I just want to ask you one more question. We have about a minute left. I wanted to ask you about the health of American diplomacy and the health of the Foreign Service. And I know that those are two different things. How do you think about those? Well, this administration has not made good use of uh, the assets, the, you know, the advantages and assets that, that the United States has tr- traditionally enjoyed in our, in our diplomatic in- instrument. It hasn't staffed it properly. It hasn't used it, used it properly. We have a tremendous amount of ad- advantages in our, uh, the strength and vitality of our foreign service, um, our experience, uh, the range of allies that we have in the, in the international community and in our alliances and partnerships. And those are just not being, they have not been used properly. So um, it's frustrating for somebody like me, very frustrating for somebody like me, who's um, been active in many situations where we've achieved things that people thought couldn't be done uh, through, our, through our example, through our values, and, and through our diplomatic instrument. And um, hopefully that can, be, that can be corrected in due course. Uh, the, the Foreign Service itself, the diplomatic corps, has been stressed. Uh, many senior people have left or, or been pushed out. Uh, I won't, won't go through any names, but in my world, it's, it's very clear. And a lot of good people have stayed on, um, trying to do the best job that they can under sometimes difficult circumstances. And, um, and so that's a credit to them. Um, because we need we need good diplomats and we need experts and we need people who who understand the world and can try to figure out how best to influence the the very many difficult events that uh, or challenges that that we face now, um, both in economy and the COVID and security and China and and everything else. Um, so, I my hope is um, that. Our, whoever wins the next election, that our Congress and our government uh, will rediscover the crucial role that diplomacy plays and how much better off we are uh, when we're able to use diplomacy effectively to respond to something like China's suppression of Hong Kong through diplomatic uh, methods that, that can be uh, impactful. And that's that's not just things like sanctions. It's it what we're really struggling with in, in Asia and with China will be a competition for values and for a vision of how how Asia is organized and behaves and operates. And the Ch- Beijing has a very different vision of that than than we do and than many Asians do. That's where diplomacy has to be active. How do you, how do you marshal this energy and this vision? and turn it into um, things that are pract- have practical impact on other actors around the world. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much for taking the time 
to join us. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you. It's been it's been great. That was Ambassador Jim Cunningham. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.